Let's read Philemon, commencing at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow labourer, and to our beloved Apphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I have retained with me, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me. But how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee, or put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand, I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. Ye brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord, refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say, but withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There salute thee, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow labourers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. When we come to this final session of these uh, meetings on the subject of forgiveness, then I think it very appropriate to turn to this letter, which is a letter about forgiveness. And we've been thinking about forgiveness defined, and we've been thinking about it illustrated. We've been thinking about some of the hard questions that are raised, and no doubt there are more that we haven't thought about we're thinking, we've been thinking about the extent and limits, if there are, on forgiveness, all of these things. But here we come at the end, and I want to just take you into this epistle to see forgiveness in action. This is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like. This is how it actually is done. So we go, in a sense, from the theory to the practice when we come into this epistle. And we are reading a letter written by Paul. It's a personal letter. In fact, it's a very personal letter. And as Paul introduces himself, he does so without the mention of his apostleship. For this is a personal letter. It's not a letter, really, that's designed to be read out in the church, you know, like some of the other personal letters that Paul wrote to Titus and to Timothy. 
And it's not a letter where his apostleship is under attack and needs to be established and affirmed. So he doesn't speak about himself as apostle. He says in verse number one, he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ and he mentions Timothy and he writes to Philemon. And so it has all the hallmarks of a very intimate personal letter. And he's writing to this man Philemon and addresses him in this way. He says, our, that is Paul and Timothy, our dearly beloved and fellow labourer. So the recipient of this letter is a man loved by Paul and Timothy and also someone who has laboured with them in the gospel. He is a man who's familiar to them. They have history and the history is good. This friendship probably developed in Ephesus because when Paul was writing these prison epistles he hadn't been to Colossae even though he wrote to the assembly in Colossae. Now what's Paul going to do? What Paul is going to do is put his friendship on the line. And he's going to do so in the area of forgiveness. He's going to take a risk. But to Paul it's no risk at all. It's no risk because he knows the man, Philemon, to whom he's making the request. So to him there's no risk. But as you read about what Paul does and what Paul requests, there is a risk. And Paul takes the risk and he puts his friendship on the line. And he's putting his friendship on the line for something that's crucial to Philemon and to Onesimus and actually also to the assembly and to their relationship. So he writes to then verse 2, he writes also and includes our beloved Apphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And then he also expands it out and says, and to the church in thy house. So here's Philemon. He must have been a wealthy man, which was unusual in those days, because most of the believers were not wealthy and were not famous or anything like that. And Apphia is probably Philemon's wife and Archippus, their son. It's hard to be... Sure about that, but the commentators seem to take that position, and that appears to be who these people are. And he writes to the, also the church in his house, and even though it's a private letter, then no doubt the implications of what is spoken of are going to affect the whole church. Now I want to come to this and ask a question. I'm not going to give you a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of this epistle so much, but I want to ask a question. At the end of all, we've thought about forgiveness. How can I, how can you, be a forgiving person? How can I be that person if I'm not already? I think we get the answer to that question in verse 47 of this little epistle. Remember, Paul is writing with confidence to this man, making a request that he will forgive. In the way that we've been thinking about in these previous sessions, the real thing. Paul is asking it of this man Philemon. Now, the reason I said to Paul it was no risk is that Paul knows the character of the man to whom he writes. And he knows... This is the kind of man who forgives. So he makes the request with absolute confidence. 
Let's make the practical application of this as we go through. Could it be said of you, could it be said of me that I am that type of person? Would Paul or anyone have the confidence to write to me and ask me to do what he does in this epistle? Could it be that I could be asked to forgive? Or would that just be so far-fetched that no one would think of even making the request? Am I so obviously not that person? Well, we're going to discover what person, what kind of person it is that Paul has the confidence to ask. And that's the sort of person who forgives. Let's look then at this from verse 4 down to verse number 7. Now we're introduced to the character of Philemon in these verses, bearing in mind this is the character of the man that Paul had confidence in to forgive. So he says in verse 4, I thank my God making mention of thee always in my prayers. Now every time Paul is praying, and Philemon is mentioned, which I think is regularly, it is in the context of thanksgiving. Paul is thankful for him, and every time he prays for him, it is in that way. And the reason is given in verse number five. He says that he thanks God, making mention of the always in my prayers. Here it is. Hearing of thy love and faith. Now just hold that thought. Which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Now hold that thought. Now, I don't know what your favourite flag is. But if you are a Scottish nationalist in heart, of course, then no doubt your favourite flag has been displayed all over your car and your window and everywhere you can these last few years. And it's the saltire. St Andrews, and you've got the blue and you've got the white cross, so you've got the, you've got the picture, you can imagine it. Well, just hold that picture in your mind and think of it as a structure. And then think of this verse. This verse in grammar is called a chiastic arrangement. And it means just this. It means that the words cross over, just like the St Andrews cross. So that when you read the verse... Hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, cross it over so the love is connected to the saints and the faith is connected to the Lord Jesus. It's what they call a chiastic arrangement. So he is thanking them because he hears, he literally continues to hear. It's the constant theme when someone speaks about Philemon. And he hears about his faith in the Lord Jesus and his love to the saints. There's his reputation. There's what people said about Philemon. Have you, do you know Philemon? No. Well, he's the man you hear about. He's the man with that faith and that love. And he's, he's characterized by those things and that's his reputation. That reputation to have. Now here is a man and Paul is praying and he's thankful because of his faith. Faith. Now, of course, this is so important when you think about <coughs> forgiveness. Excuse me if you've been here through all these sessions and you've heard all this, but it is so important. That this man who's a man of faith, this man who is a genuine believer, is the sort of man who can forgive. 
Why? He has the impulses of the indwelling spirit of God. He has new life. He has been convicted by the word of God. This is the type of man. This is the type of man who's been forgiven himself, who has come in repentance and faith and received forgiveness. He's a true believer in the Lord Jesus. And so this is the man. And the first characteristic of someone who is capable to forgive is a very simple one. He is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I may be speaking to someone in the hall here tonight who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet you're trying to live as if you were. And you can't do it. You see, it is only someone with new life, with the indwelling Spirit of God, who has been awakened to his need and has received God's forgiveness, who then has the capability to forgive as God forgives. Faith, but also love. Love to all the saints. Here's something that characterizes a person who forgives. This is the agape love. This is the love of choice, the love of the will. This is the love of self-sacrifice. This is the love of humility. This is the love that says, I don't care about myself more than I care about others. I am willing to put my self-interest underneath the interest of others. I will not insist upon my own interests above the interests of others. This is someone who loves the saints. This is not an emotive relationship. This is the love of the will. This is not the love of how I feel. This is the love of how I behave. This is the love of how I speak. This is the love of what I do. This is action which speaks much louder than words. This is Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9 teaching us that we don't need to be instructed in this because God teaches us how to love in this way. Romans chapter 5 tells us that we can love in this way because the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts. And 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14 says it very bluntly. He says this, it's a test as to whether you're born again if you love this way. So love to others is the second characteristic of someone who forgives. Someone whose faith is in Christ and whose love is toward the saints. Listen, if we don't love each other, there isn't the slightest possibility that we'll forgive each other. Not the slightest possibility. Now, that doesn't, that's not the old thing, you know, I love you, but I don't like you, that kind of thing. And all these little expressions we have to excuse our behaviour. And the hall's full of people who are serving each other, they can't stand each other. It's hardly what you would call Christian fellowship, really. And these things are all very um, kind of subtle, but destructive. Because they cause us to tolerate third-rate Christianity, where we're not even hitting the baseline. So we have to love each other, which means we have to serve each other, which means that we have to prioritise others before ourselves. 
Now, if we do that, forgiveness will be so much simpler. Because if you are important to me, I will find it an awful lot easier to forgive you than if you're unimportant. And if I think I'm more important than you, then I'm not going to forgive you for anything. I'll be expecting you to be doing all the forgiving, not me. So when you come to this kind of idea, the idea is just this, that here is someone who is full of faith, and here is someone who's full of love, but then look at verse number six. He is concerned about fellowship. (coughs) That the communication, that word is fellowship. The fellowship of thy faith may become effectual, may become powerful. The sharing of your faith, the experience of your faith, the fellowship of your faith may have a tremendous impact on others. You see, this matters to Philemon. He cares about others. He loves the Lord. He loves others. And he cares about others. And he cares about the fellowship and the impact he has on others. It doesn't matter what a man does to you or what a woman does to you. If you can take that person back and embrace that person in love, you've made a strong statement about your concern for fellowship. For the mutual belonging that you have. You're not concerned about you and your isolation and your individualism. You're concerned about the mutual participation, the partnership, the fellowship, the whole. Isn't that true? That we talk so much about fellowship and about assembly fellowship. And what we really mean is membership. Because when it comes down to the preservation of that fellowship and the maintenance of that fellowship in reality, then we're not quite so quick when it means forgiving or seeking forgiveness. This man was different. So he was a man characterised by faith and a man characterised by love and a man who had a concern for fellowship with his fellow saints and the sharing of faith and also knowledge. Look at verse number six as well, that the communication, the fellowship of thy faith may become effectual or powerful by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the idea, the, the, this is a knowledge that is gained through personal acquaintance with truth, through the experience of truth applied. Listen, he's really saying this, if you forgive Onesimus, you're immediately going to experience the good thing that's called forgiveness. That thing you've read about and heard about, that thing you've seen in others, that thing you know about, you're about to become intimately acquainted with, personally. How much of Christian experience do you and I know about that we've never experienced? Not firsthand. We read about it in paperbacks and we admire and we, we kind of extol others who have done it, experienced it, been there, seen it and so on. But what about us? This is a man who's going to experience firsthand, not secondhand, not thirdhand, The whole concept of forgiveness. The good things. 
But then notice verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels, you know, you get this expression, the bowels, the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Okay, he's the sort of man who forgives. He's the sort of man who's concerned about refreshing the saints. Refreshing the saints. You know, it's like the common idea, we were in the hospital, hospital early and so it comes to mind. The common idea is this. You imagine the scenario. You're lying in a hospital bed. So you're feeling less than great. And you can see the lift right down the corridor. This is how I imagine it. The lift opens, it's visiting time. And in a few minutes, the next hour is either going to be great or terrible, <laughs> depending who walks through that lift. And if it's someone who comes along and you know them, every minute's an hour, every hour's an eternity, and all the rest of it. And you end up hearing about their medication and about how awful things are for them, and you're comforting them. The other sort of person that walks in is different. They're the sort of person that leave you feeling better than when you arrived. They might be humorous, they might not, it's just something about them. They might know what to read, how long to pray, what to pray for. They might know when to leave, which is always a good thing as well as when to arrive. And they are the sort of person who refreshes the hearts of the saints. You see, they're sensitive to other people. They're not fixated in what they're doing and what their life's about and their problems and their issues and, and talking about themselves all the time, but they refresh the saints' hearts. That's the sort of person who forgives. Because they're more concerned about someone else's welfare than they are about their own. You see, this is the sort of man Philemon was. And he says it gives us great joy. We hear about these things. And he says in verse 7, we get great joy when we hear about the fact that the bowels, the hearts, the, the, the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. And so this is the sort of man. He's a blessing to people. And he brings them rest. So how do I learn to forgive? I need to be like Philemon. You know, if I'm not like Philemon, I can know all about <laughs> forgiveness, but I never will forgive. I mean, I'll hear all about the things in, we've looked at from Scripture, and I'll leave from here, and I'll never do it. Not once. And the reason I won't do it is because I don't love. And the reason is that I don't prioritize other people over me and I'm not chiefly concerned with the well-being of others not really and I will hold people to account and I will not forgive I will not forgive and I will not accept being part of that experience, either to forgive or being forgiven. Just won't accept it. I'll know all about it. But I won't do it. If I was a more forceful preacher, 
I would point my finger at you and really push the point home and maybe ask you to just take a moment and think about that person. You know the one. And to just determine in your mind that you will forgive. You will forgive. You see, this is the sort of man that forgives. Now notice verse number 8, the appeal. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, the authorised text is perhaps a little unfamiliar to us in terms of language, but he's really just saying this, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper. He says, I'm an apostle. I have confidence in my calling. I could demand, but I won't. This is not a matter where demands are made. He says in verse 9, for love's sake I rather beseech. There's a tenderness to Paul. There's a sensitivity to Paul. And then, of course, he brings out the trump card, which who can deny him? He says, after all, I am an old man. He says, I'm Paul the aged. And if that wasn't enough, he says, I'm also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So I'm an old man and I'm in the jail. How are you going to refuse me? Well, the answer is he's not going to refuse him. And so he has three grounds of appeal. If you want to study the chapter, you'll find this. There is, first of all, the bond of love between them that he appeals to. Then there is the fact of his age. Now, he's not that old. I used to think Paul's an ancient old man. But, you know, now I think 60s actually not bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. Robert Levy's going to be walking the West Highland Way with us, and he has long past 60, I think. So it's not that bad. But Paul in those days was an aged man. And mind you, if I'd suffered what Paul had suffered then my body might well be looking a lot older than 60 if he'd been through what he'd been through. But he is Paul the aged, and presently he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus. So now he makes his appeal, verse 10. He says, I beseech thee. Okay, so it's all been building up to this point. If you're Philemon, you're reading this, and you're saying, well, here it comes. Here it comes. I mean, he's reminded me about the good thing he's heard about me. He's reminded me about the character that I've displayed. He's, he's told me that he's not going to order me to do this. He's going to appeal to me. And he's softened me up with this idea of an image of Paul as an old man in a prison cell, making his request out of love. And because of their friendship and relationship, well, here it comes. Could I suggest to you that there are three things Paul asks him to do, and these are three aspects of forgiveness. Number one, receive him. He says, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Now in times past he was unprofitable, but now he's profitable. You've sent him again to you. Here it is, thou therefore receive him. Now, he says quite a bit before he gets to it, but that's the point. Receive him. That's the first action. Now, he's filling in the background. And as you imagine Philemon's reading this, he must have been stunned. Onesimus. That rascal. Onesimus, who owes me a big debt. Onesimus is coming. And I've got a decision to make. Do I make him pay the debt? 
or do I forgive him? What am I going to do? Paul says, receive him. Can I suggest to you that this is what we've been talking about in relation to forgiveness? Receive him. Open up your life and take him back. Now the story, there is a backstory to this. The backstory is that like Philemon, well, Paul had led this man to the Lord, evidently. We don't know the particular circumstances, but he had been led to the Lord by Paul, just like Philemon had been. And Philemon appreciated Paul, and so did Onesimus. There's the connection. Now he says in verse 11, he's a changed man. There's the repentance. He's a changed man. He says in times past he was unprofitable. Here's the change. But now he's profitable to thee and to me. You see, there's a difference. There's a change. There's been repentance. And there's the signs of repentance, the evidence of repentance. Now, in verse number 12, he says, I've sent him, receive him. That is my own bowels. He says, it's as if I'm sending you my own heart. It's how precious this man has become to me. In fact, in verse 13, he says, I would have kept him here that because you can't minister to me, he could have ministered in your stead. Just as if you were here, he could have represented you and served as you had wanted to have served. But he says, I wouldn't have done it in verse 14. Without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as if it were of necessity, but willingly. He says, I wouldn't presume upon our friendship. I know that's what you'd have wanted. I know that's what you'd have offered. But I'm not going to presume upon your friendship. I'd love to have done it, he said. I'd love to have had him here. What a change in that man. Receive him because there's a change. There's a change. When I've been speaking about repentance... Uh, sorry, forgiveness. I have been using the word repentance repeatedly. Repeatedly. And although it flies, I suppose, in the face of what we might think about repentance, you cannot separate the two. But listen, if someone has changed, and repented we have no other choice than to forgive it is our duty we saw that in our last session it is our obligation it is an imposition that grace has brought upon us we must forgive And so he says, receive, open your life. Because if you forgive, you're going to have to open your life. And let them back in. Let them in. Secondly, restoration. Restore him. Now, forgiveness means restoring a relationship. We've seen that. The restoration of a relationship is key to forgiveness. And in fact, here, not just a restoration of a relationship, but to a better relationship than they had before. So he says in verse 15, For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, 
that thou shouldest receive him forever. What he's saying is just this, take a step back, Philemon. Look at this from the divine perspective. Look at this from the big picture. Take a step back. Don't just get fixated in the minutiae of the conflict and of the disappointment and of the debt. He said, take a step back and see the big picture. He said, you may have suffered a debt. You may have incurred a debt, sorry, and suffered a loss in the short term. But he says, look at what God has done in the long term. See the big picture of divine purpose and grace in his life and in yours. And view that short-term loss and that debt incurred in light of the big picture. So he says, he's encouraging them, look, you've had a dysfunctional relationship. That's true. No doubt about it. Onesimus is coming back. He's coming back a changed man. He's not the same man as he was. And there's evidence of that. There's history of that. There's testimony to that from Paul himself. And now he says, look, you can see what God has done here. And God has made the wrath of men to praise him. God has produced good out of evil as he does so often. He's triumphed over sin and his providential power and his providential grace through that disaster in that man's house and Onesimus' behaviour has led to his salvation and is now going to lead to his restoration. Sometimes we cannot see the woods for the tree. Sometimes we cannot see the big picture for being consumed by the minutiae of our own hurt pride and small loss and dead incurred. We can't see the big picture. So he says then, God basically has taken, as one writer puts it, the infinite contingencies and decisions of humanity and uses them to accomplish his own purpose. A temporary separation, an eternal relationship. Verse 16, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the law. He's actually saying, restore him, but you know what? Don't just restore him. Receive him back. He's no longer just a slave. He's more than a slave. He's now a beloved brother. Take him back as a servant, but also take him back as a brother. He's changed. You've now got a faithful servant, and you've got a brother who's going to be different in your household. But you've got to take him back. You've got to restore him. We have seen that forgiveness means that we need to we need to open up ourselves. We need to receive and we need to restore. Anything short of that is not forgiveness. But then more than that, there is the, also the principle of restitution here. Now we haven't ignored that either in our studies. For in verse 17, Paul acknowledges that this man had done wrong and incurred a debt, and that debt must be faced. That's why God is able to forgive us. Remember, we've been at the cross so often in our studies, but remember that God is able to forgive us because our debt was paid. 
In that sense, restitution was made in relation to divine justice. But not by us, because we had such a debt, as we saw in that parable, that there wasn't any possibility of us repaying it. But the Lord Jesus paid it in full on the cross when he shed his precious blood and said, it is finished, it's gone, it's done, the debt is paid. But in relationships, the issue of restitution is a real one and should not be ignored. Should not be ignored. Paul does not ignore the big issue of restitution. So he says this. If thou count me, therefore, as a partner, receive him as myself. And it may have jumped into Philemon's mind. But what about that debt? What about that debt? Paul deals with it. Verse 18. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee ought, put that on my account. He says, I'll pay it. Now, that means what it says. Paul says, I'll pay it. Now, Philemon's in a position that you and I have been placed in in our second study today. Or maybe our first. I will pay it. Is Philemon going to demand that Paul pays this debt? When Paul reminds him of the debt that Philemon owes to Paul. How are you going to ask Paul to pay this debt when you owe Paul a debt that you cannot calculate because Paul brought you the gospel? That's actually what Paul writes. And he's invoking divine principles of forgiveness here. And so what he does, just let's work our way through it. He says, I want you to treat Onesimus as you would treat me. Welcome him as you would welcome me. Forgive him as you would forgive me. Hold an obligation against him as you would hold an obligation against me. Now he says, if he's wronged you or if he owes you anything, put that in my account. I'll pay it. Now, it would have been right for Philemon to say, to Onesimus, you will pay me back what you owe me. That would have been righteous. That would have been okay in the prodigal son scenario. You remember he turns up and he's, you know, he's got his little speech rehearsed and I'm not, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. But he gets home and what does he say? I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I'm not worthy to be called thy son. Stop. The father didn't let him go any further. Why? The father did not demand restitution. Even although the son was willing to make it. Here we have this idea of restitution offered and received or not. It's up to Philemon. His decision. It's his decision. Paul is coming to stay very soon. He says that as well. He's fairly piling the pressure on. He's going to come and visit. He's going to pay what Onesimus owes. But you know, he's confident that Onesimus is going to be like God. God was violated by our sin. Philemon was violated by Onesimus' sin. 
Onesimus is like the sinner who runs away from God, who defrauds God, who wastes his life, who is going to be reconciled to God. But if he's going to be reconciled to God, somebody else is going to have to pay the price. And Paul is saying, I want to be like the Lord. I want to take on someone else's debt. And I'm going to pay the price of another so that reconciliation can take place. Never are we more like the Lord Jesus when we are willing to carry a debt so that forgiveness can take place. Just think about that. Never are we more like God when we are willing to forgive. Paul says, I've written this with my own hand. I will repay it albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self beside. You know, Philemon was a debtor who owed a far greater and unpayable debt to Paul. Onesimus owes Philemon a material debt. Philemon owes Paul a spiritual debt. What an important principle to remember. You know, in life you shouldn't realise this, that as you walk with the Lord through life, you incur debt all the time. All the time. There are debts that you incur before God, that is true. But listen, there are also debts you incur to other saints all the time. Debts which are never discharged. They're just carried in your behalf. People who've not insisted on having the debt paid. People who've not insisted in satisfaction. People who've received an apology and accepted it and yet left the debt and removed it and refused to have it between you without it ever being settled. People who've actually been indebted. Well, you've been indebted to people because they have served you and loved you and shown you kindness right through your life. And the reality is this. If you were to do the sums, you're probably far more in debt to others than others are to you. That was Philemon, who was owed a debt by Onesimus of a financial nature, but who owed a spiritual debt to Paul of an eternal character. Paul's the man who brought him the gospel. <coughs> As you and I value the input of others in our lives and the burdens they've carried for us and the things that they have received and the apologies they've accepted and all of that kind of stuff and of the debts that we've incurred, perhaps it will soften our hearts a little that we might be willing to carry some debts ourselves that we might be willing when someone comes and asks for forgiveness and there's a big outstanding debt, that we might be willing to grant forgiveness, allow it to be received, and just to carry the burden. Just carry the burden. Leave it to the judgment seat of Christ, whatever it may be. These are big things and difficult things. And it's not an exact science in any shape or form. We understand that for human relationships or not. 
But you can see that what Paul is doing is taking the principles of forgiveness and he's applying them to a situation. And I have absolute confidence that Paul's confidence was well-founded and that Philemon would embrace Onesimus and bring him back. And there would be no request for the financial settlement of that debt. And the forgiveness that would be asked for would be granted and received. And the relationship would be restored. And Paul had that debt on his account. And he carried it. He just carried it. Summary. How do I learn to be a forgiving person? It's not magical in any sort of sense. Faith in Christ gives me the capacity. Love to the saints. I need to practice loving the saints. Sharing my faith, our faith, the fellowship of our faith. I need to experience what I know. And I do need to value the well-being of others. And what does forgiveness look like from this epistle? It looks as if Onesimus is received. And it looks as if he's restored. And it looks as if restitution is not demanded. It's not demanded. We trust that these things, along with the rest of our meditation on this subject, may be profitable 